0: Namo dasa baka watho arahato samma sambudhasa. Namo dasa baka arahato samma sambudhasa. Namo dasa baka arahato We come to the uh, appendix of this book, and uh, I went uh, debated, went back and forth a bit whether to include this or not. Um, this was from a talk that I gave here in Amravati in 1987, so 35 years ago. Maybe some of you weren't even born at that point. Probably most of you were. <laughs> you weren't. Born, so. So, yeah, 1987, uh, so quite a long time ago. And so uh, it was a, f- uh, my, the, the kind of talks I gave in that era are far more speculative. Um, I was not uh, so familiar with the the, the suttas and didn't quote them so often. Um, and uh, <coughs> so it has that kind of a speculative spirit to it. So, again, please don't take this all as absolutely sort of watertight doctrinal. Uh, teaching, but more some reflections on Paticca Samupada, and it was uh, uh, over a cup of coffee one morning with uh, Lumpur Sumaito when uh, before the temple. This was long before the temple was built. He used to live in these two rooms at the end of the old Dhamma Hall, the sort of school gymnasium. That's where his his uh, where he resided. That was his his rooms, and. Uh, he'd been talking a lot about dependent origination during the winter retreat and so I'd been having various ideas and thoughts and associations that have taken shape. And so over a cup of coffee one morning we got chatting about this and he said, oh, would you like to give a talk about all this uh, tonight? Um, And I uh, said, certainly. And so this talk arose on the invitation of of Lumpur Sumaito for me to speak about some of the things that we were the uh, were emerging over that very good cup of coffee. This evening I've been asked to offer some reflections on the Paticca Samuppada to pass on a few of the different images I have used in the past which have helped illuminate its meaning for me. First of all, it occurred to me how much similarity there was in the way in which the Paticca Samuppada ran and the way that one can look at the arising of the human being from, from the raw matter of existence. The samuppada is a pattern that is trying to describe the way in which persons and their suffering arise. In the Buddhist world, it's often stated that these stem primarily from ignorance you know, Avijja Paccaya Sankara. Uh, however, as the Thai meditation master Venerable Achan Man pointed out in his discourse Mutodaya, quote, the primordial heart is the mother and father of ignorance. That is to say, these arisings depend on ignorance but ultimately it is out of suchness the unconditioned that persons and their problems appear so that's uh, in uh, the very small book of, of, of Venerable Achaman's teachings called Mutadaya, he points out you know, everything has a mother and father and ignorance also has a, a mother and father and he talks about the, um, the primordial heart which is a, a, a translation for the the Pali, which was Titi Bhutang, I think is, uh, and there have been many debates, you can probably go online and find all kinds of of, uh, equally speculative interpretations of what, exactly what Ajahn Man meant by this unusual Pali term. But anyway, it's uh, translated as the, the primordial heart is the mother and father of ignorance. That is to say, these arisings depend on ignorance, but ultimately it is out of suchness, the unconditioned, that persons and their problems appear. So, in this era, one of the, the frequent phrases of, uh, of Lumpur Sumeto, one of his many sort of regular Dhamma uh, expositions was, um, all conditions arise out of the unconditioned and dissolve into the unconditioned. He would say that. He says it occasionally nowadays, but not so often, because uh, he got scolded <laughs> for saying that you can never find any place in the Pali Canon where the, where the Buddha says that. You get, uh, 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 as I was. Uh, we had a discussion a few, uh, few days ago about merging in the deathless, all conditions merge in the deathless. You do have that and I'll read a bit about that in a minute. Um, but you, there's never any place in the Pali Canon where it says all conditions arise out of the unconditioned. So that was Lumpur Sumaito, uh, riffing on the theme uh, according to his own experience. But he did get scolded a few times by a few people. So um, he'd stopped using that particular expression and used other things. He's been scolded for other things then, uh, things like, you know, "consciousness is unconditioned." That again, people sort of wince at. But he has his own use of language, his own methodology, which I, um, uh, you know, if you if you pay attention and you listen closely, you see how um, the the meaning, uh, uh, the essence of what he's saying, is, is perfectly in accord with, with with Buddha Dhamma. But he's using the language in his own particular way. So in this era I was very much copying Lumpur phrases. I was only, uh, I hadn't been a monk for 10 years at that point, so I was still new to the the whole teaching world and so I very much was just following in his footsteps and and using his kind of language. So uh, that's why I use that phrase, that uh, it's out of suchness the unconditioned that persons and their problems appear. I, I wouldn't deny that now. I wouldn't quite phrase it that way, but uh, say so there's there's ways you can see that that still pertains in terms of uh, de, uh, the word for nature is dhamma-jati, born of the dhamma. Though in the Thai language, tamachat is the way they do, the word they use for nature or what is natural, tamachat, which comes from dhamma-jati, born of the dhamma. So there uh, there are ways that it does hold together, but uh, again. Sometimes the phraseology sets off alarm bells in people. Now, when you consider the nature of matter, you can reflect that it is from this same suchness that this too emanates. When you begin to look down at molecules and then atoms and then subatomic particles, you find that there is a limit which the ability to measure and the conceptual mind cannot reach beyond. At this quantum limit, the most minute and primordial particles that are known and talked about have all kinds of weird qualities that don't really correlate with the physical world as we know it, uh, at the unassisted sensory level, for which they, coi- they coin terms like waveical, like a cross between a wave and a particle, a wavicle of strangeness and charm, and beyond them there is nothing that can be described. Also things like that you know, that uh, time can go forwards or backwards at the quantum level and, uh, and also there's a limit in terms of space, what they call the Planck length. That's after max Planck, not a wooden Planck. Planck with a C in it, uh, max Planck. The Planck length is 10 to the minus 37 of a meter um, and it's uh, beyond, uh, you can't meaningfully talk about the distance shorter than that, because at that, at that level, distance stops having any meaning. And uh, Carlo Rovelli, who's a very um, popular, prominent uh, physicist, um, written a number of fine books nowadays, um, this is a, a, a part of his, he talks about this quite often, and how he actually, he says, actually, if you consider this matter of the Planck length being the, the lower limit of where distance has any meaning, is that actually space is granular. You can't say space is infinitely divisible it, uh, beyond... If maybe this, if this is getting too esoteric, just look bored or get up and walk away. But, <laughs> uh, but I do feel it's significant. So that Rovelli talks about space, we might think space is infinitely divisible. We says, well actually in terms of physical reality it's not, because you can't meaningfully talk about a distance less than 10 to the minus 37 of a meter, space and distance—they stop having a meaning at that uh, at that scale. So he points out: so space is actually granular. It's actual—you have sort of, you, you can't say that it's still space as we know it below below that that short distance. So things get really really strange at that uh, that uh, uh, microscopic, super microscopic level. Um, <clears throat> and uh, and so when we talk about uh, you know ultimate reality and sort of suchness and the uh, you know the Buddha's own way of, of speaking about about uh, Dhamma, also the Sameta saying you know Dhamma is indescribable. You know, you, you, it is, you can't you can't describe it. There's no it's unimaginable. You can't create an image. Like you know, how do you um, create an image of time going backwards or or space not applying? It's just, they come up with these words like strangeness or charm um, for for quarks and or quarks even <laughs> for these subatomic particles and that, that whole domain, because there's nothing that we can compare it to in our ordinary everyday physical sensory world. So anyway, past this limit, space and form, energy and matter appear to merge, to become unified and indistinguishable. They use terms like the plenum and quantum foam, virtual particles existing briefly as fleeting fluctuations in the fabric of space-time, to describe this primordial level of physical reality. This is the suchness of physical existence, and its nature is beyond the measure of the thinking mind. As soon as there is ignorance, however, that is, as our focus relaxes and we're not totally with that sense of suchness, at that moment, formations, quote-unquote, arise. Out of this all-pervasive, seamless web of suchness, there emerges that which can be labelled as divided, waves and particles, quarks and muons and gluons, hot and cold, this and that. So formations, or compounded conditions, are that which is formed, that which has got a pattern. Although the Western scientific world might not recognise it, within most esoteric traditions and native religions, and within the intuitions of many, it's understood that matter possesses consciousness again this is speculative <laughs> so uh, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure what I was reading at the time, it was probably a lot of Fritjof Capra and, uh, and uh, Joseph Campbell and um, Fritjof Schuon um, uh, but uh, matter possesses consciousness and that any type of thing which is formed has some kind of consciousness associated with it um, uh, for a Native American, for example, to break up a rock without asking permission first or expressing gratitude for the usefulness which it is offering would be like performing surgery on your mother without an anesthetic. That's probably a bit of an exaggeration, but well, in, a, in a sweat lodge, they, uh, they heat up rocks in a fire and the rocks are called rock people. They, they call them people. They're called the rock, the rock people, inviting the rock people to, uh, to be sharing their heat. I've been in one or two sweat lodges with some Native Americans, so I can speak up for that uh, with direct experience. Reflection along these lines has helped me to clarify the mysterious link between the arising of formations and then consciousness, sankara and minyana. In this way, you may see that as soon as that which is unformed becomes formed, then there is some kind of consciousness associated with that pattern. Uh, again, Tatiyampi, this is all very speculative. If you're interested, you can find a, a, a lecture given by Erwin Schrödinger of the famous Schrödinger's Cat um, called uh, Do Electrons Think? He comes to the conclusion that they don't. <laughs> but then anyway, he would, because he's a physicist. But that was given in 1949, that lecture. You can find it on YouTube if you're interested. You have access to YouTube. But, uh, Do Electrons Think? by Erwin Schrodinger. Um, so, uh, again, this is, this is speculative. and it was just ruminations that I had over a cup of coffee with Paul And uh, he said, okay, share it with everybody. You know? And I did think twice before I put it in this book, but I thought, uh, I talked about it with, with my editor, and the designer said, yeah, I'll put it in, Ajahn, why not? So, I thought, uh, to share this with everyone, to be a source of reflection. If you then reflect upon the biological basis of life, you find that it is built, first of all, from simple molecules and then complex molecules, then amino acids and proteins. Very simple forms of life, such as prokaryotes, uh, can be made by natural occurrences out of these basic chemicals. Now, it doesn't take very much of a thing for a thing to to become sentient. Some of the most simple viruses are nothing more than a few strands of DNA molecules, But they can reproduce, and they possess the one factor that all living, all sentient beings have in common, which is irritability. I remember that from my biology classes back in high school. The the biology teacher said, what's the one characteristic that all living things have? He said, well, they they breathe, sir. No, 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 there's there's living beings that are anaerobic, that they're alive, but they don't breathe. Try, try this, try that, you know, they they, they they replicate, well, some beings, some living things don't replicate, you know, they try this and that, and then I remember him finally saying, all beings are irritable, <laughs> every living thing is irritable, and I thought, well, there's dukkha for you, I mean, I didn't have dukkha in part of my lexicon at that time, but uh, when I came across uh, Buddhism, I thought, oh, that, that matches up with the... Uh, Mr. Mr. S- Mr. Smith, Keith Smith, in the biology classes, all living things are irritable. So irritability is the one characteristic of all living things. We can be annoyed. So these molecular patterns, wherein there is some kind of consciousness, eventually refine and complexify, and from them arises sentiency. This strengthens and the apparent division between physical structure and the mental energy that exists associated with that form. This is described as the arising of mentality and materiality. The more that the form develops and life complexifies, the more there grows. Uh, There grows up a whole system of ways in which the living being can pick up information about the environment around it. What is there around that is beneficial? What is there that is dangerous? This is the sensory world. And it is, it's in this way that all the cells of our body become sensitive to other cells and other activities around them. First of all, this sensitivity is quite coarse, just dangerous, get away, or good, grab it. Even tiny little cells and simple structures react in this way. But what happens with evolution and the refining of structures within our bodies is that these become developed into the sensory organs. Very distinct ways of picking out precise information about the environment in which we live. This is how the sense organs arise from the basis of mind and body, mentality, materiality, particularly the six sense organs of the human. Because there are because there are the sense organs, there is the picking up of information about the environment. There follows contact. So you have the salayatana, the six senses, eye, ear, nose, tongue, body and mind. And then contact, pasa, with the outside world. Then feeling, and all the ensuing qualities of the experience of existence. This part of the Paticca Samuppada I will go into shortly, as it's only this first part that these more scientific reflections are connected with, are concerned with. Any questions, thoughts, reflections, refutations? Please. If, if that makes any sense, or, or well and good, if it doesn't make sense, then so be it. Okay. Any thoughts, reflections? on? Um, that particular set of ruminations? Yes. I just wondered because you mentioned there was something about when the attention relaxes or something. Hmm? You read something about when the attention relaxes or when the attention relaxes. when the attention relaxes. Or something relaxes and then some the Sankara relaxes. What's that? Um, or formation relaxes. Uh, say, it was, yeah, there was um, As soon as there is ignorance, however, that is, as our focus relaxes, and we're not totally with that sense of suchness, at that moment, formations arise. So, as soon as there's uh, the mind is not attuned to the suchness, the tatata, or that, that sort of primordial quality, and there's a, uh, an unmindfulness, and maybe relaxes is not perfect, but it sort of gets distracted. You know the attention gets distracted, and we're not totally with that sense of suchness. Out of this all-pervasive, seamless web of suchness, there emerges that which can be labelled and divided: waves and particles, quarks and muons and gluons, hot and cold, this and that, or self and other. So formations, sankara, or compounded conditions, are that which is formed, that which has got a pattern. So avijjapaceya sankara, when there's ignorance not seen clearly, then you get that. Um, division and patterning. Because in my understanding, it's more like when the mind gets cramped or when there is this grasping. it's the opposite of relaxation in a way. Yeah, maybe it was was an unusual use of the word. Maybe it's uh, distraction. Or when it's unmindful would have been a better way of phrasing it. I tweaked this a little bit from the original. I, I, I adjusted a few things, but uh, I left that in. So, yeah, it's the the like a the, what I meant was the drifting of attention, or the 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 mind is becoming uh, sort of distracted or deluded, or not not seeing, not fully attuned to the reality of the present. Any other thoughts, feelings? Yeah, Arjun. Yes. It's,
1: it's, it's
0: a common experience. Uh, particularly, I was in formal meditation. The mind is so easily impressed by anything—really anything. Really anything. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's like a, like the, the little tiny microscopic hairs in our ears, or the the like uh, the, the cells in our eyes can, re, re, can they can react to a single photon. They get <laughs> <laughs> just literally a single photon of light hitting the certain cells in our eye will send off an impulse. We're very sensitive. <laughs> so the mind... Uh, so that's why it takes a lot of training to to learn how to not be distracted and confused by the mind's activity and creations. Yeah, Lumpur cha I was reading a passage of, of Lumpur Chow's, um yesterday about what he calls original mind. Jit, jit Derm. Jit Derm, is that right? Yeah, jit Derm the original mind, and he's saying uh, the original mind, or, or like Lumpur's made it called called pure consciousness, same, same. That it has no quality, it, it, it's, uh, it's aware, but it's not happy or sad, it's not, uh, it's, it, it's, uh, it, it, it's awake, it knows, but it has no attribute, no, no other quality. And so he said like a flag hanging on a, on a pole, the flag will just hang there, if there's some wind that comes, then the flag will start moving, or, or like a leaf, on a, on a branch you know, if there's no wind then the leaf just sits there but as soon as a wind comes along then the leaf flaps and flutters but in, in itself the, the original mind the, the, that uh, primordial heart as uh, uh, from the Ajahn Mun translation that it, it has no characteristics other than, than being awake being aware and knowing and so that uh, but as soon as there's some sensory activity or something comes along <laughs> that will... Create its, its ripples. Its, it will start start the flag moving, and then then the attention gets caught by the movement of the, the leaf or the flag, or the the eye or the ear uh, reacting. That's why that's why we practice, to that how to not get caught in those those ripples, those those uh, the waving of the flags. My question is about: is there on the bodily level or a possibility to to keep more on the on that quality of, of mind? Yeah, well sense restraint, Indriya Sangvara is one of the, the main um, uh, supports for, for practice that not filling the senses with things that create you know, busyness and confusion and agitation. Sangvara means restraint, um, uh, Indriya is the, 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 um, the senses or well, the faculties, sense faculties, and so the indriya samvara is uh, to do with, with learning how not to be reactive to, so being thoughtful about what you what you listen to, what you eat, what you what you look at, what you uh, uh, what you fill the senses with, and learning to be responsive rather than reactive in, uh, to the to what is perceived. So. But yeah, in terms of, of uh, Buddhist monastic life and training in, in Buddhist monasteries, indriya sanghara. is why we, we dress modestly. Why we uh, we, we behave in, in sort of we try to move about in calm ways. We don't do cartwheels across the the uh, the sala or play frisbee together or, or more exotic and act, you know, colorful activities. So that restraint, uh, calmness, uh, you know, just, just having a. You know, uh, as sort of mild and benign uh, and respectful an impact upon each other and the way that we move, the way we speak, the way that we, we relate, all that's all to do with Indriya samvara and not creating too much busyness and agitation in the sense world. So it's very much going against the current of a lot of society and cultural stimulation and the ever shrinking attention span. <laughs> uh, but uh, that's that's part of the monastic form is about uh, say, uh, creating an environment that is very, very calm, very peaceful, very, uh, very say, respectful, and, and uh, supportive of that uh, ability to, to, to watch and to know the, the world of the senses and not to not get caught in them. So maybe I will read that before I go on the, um, there was a passage I read the other day, or referred to the other day about merging with the deathless. So I thought I, I would I don't, uh, our sister is not here who's asking the question about that but anyway, so this is from the island um, and it's on the, the, the chapter called, it's from a chapter called Attending to the Deathless. The final issue to address in this chapter is the usage and meaning of the phrase merging with the deathless, amato Gadda. There are numerous occasions where the Buddha uses such expressions as there are these five faculties, faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration and wisdom when maintained in being and developed merge in the deathless reach to the deathless and end in the deathless or as an alternative translation These five faculties, when developed and cultivated, have the deathless as their ground, the deathless as their destination, the deathless as their final goal. And then that uh, um, passage with our our fruit-laden tree from the Book of the Tens. Rooted in interest are all things, born of attention are all things, arising from contact are all things, converging on feelings are all things, headed by concentration are all things, dominated by mindfulness are all things, surmounted by wisdom are all things, yielding deliverance as their essence are all things, merging in the deathless are all things, terminating in nibbāna are all things. Then another passage from the Book of the Eights. Mindfulness of death, monks, if cultivated and frequently practiced, brings great fruit, great benefit. It merges in the deathless, ends in the deathless. So, what might be meant by, quote, merging in the deathless, unquote, or the deathless is their ground, destination, and final goal? In the Vedas, the image of the self, Atman, reuniting with the Godhead, Brahman, is a common characterization of the spiritual path. Many other expressions of spiritual knowledge also employ the language of, quote, becoming one with everything, or interrelatedness, quote, unquote, merging with the universe, quote, unquote, or the dewdrop slips into the shining sea, which is the way that the light of Asia ends, by Sir Edwin Arnold. Such language plainly endeavours to represent a gravitation of the heart towards truth, an aspiration that is intuitive to the human condition. Thus, it would be easy to read the statements on merging as a similar kind of spiritual return or union. However, the Buddha expended considerable effort to counteract this model and very carefully pointed out in numerous teachings that all these types of expression are subtly rooted in wrong view. For example, this is from the uh, Invitation to the Brahma, Majima, the Middle-length Discourses, Sutta 49. Having directly known that which is not commensurate with the allness of all, I did not claim to be all, with a capital A, all. I did not claim to be in all. I did not claim to be apart from all. I did not claim all to be mine. I did not affirm all. Or well, From the first sutra in the Majima, They perceive all as all. Having perceived all as all, they conceive themselves as all. They conceive themselves in all. They conceive themselves apart from, or coming from the all. They conceive all to be theirs. They delight in all. Why is that? Because they have not fully understood it, I say. This latter passage expresses some of the kinds of view that he criticized as eternalist, as sasatavada in Pali, eternalist, and thus one of the extremes to be avoided. The Buddha insistently spoke of the middle way as the path to freedom and peace. Therefore, it's most helpful to keep returning to that principle as the primal guide, just as in a tightrope walk, there is both the constant danger of tilting too far to the left or to the right and the need for a relaxed yet alert attention to minor fluctuations of balance. It's a pronounced human tendency to lean towards either eternalism or nihilism, pushing ahead or holding back. The Buddha's teaching is unsurpassed in both analysing and providing genuine means for counteracting such tendencies. Perhaps the clearest expression of this problem and its antidote that has come down to us in the suttas is found in the that's sutta Number Forty Nine, and it's also touched upon in the Udana, uh, and also most significantly, significantly in um, in the connected discourses uh, in the connected discourses on causation. And I'll sort of mention a particular suttas there. When one reflects on the language the Buddha uses to express this principle of merging with the deathless, and meshes it with his statements about the all capital A One can see that the image of the relationship of habitual sense perceptions, the all, to the deathless is more that of coming out of a dream and merging with waking reality, recognizing the coil of rope after fearing the snake in the grass, rather than a river merging with a sea of identical substance. If instead we understand the language in this way, all dreams merge with waking reality, have waking reality as their ground, reach to the waking state and have that as their end. The imagery still holds, but we are respecting the utterly transcendent nature of the deathless, just as the waking state utterly transcends the world of dream. Now it could also be contended that these passages, as quoted here, are not perfect renderings. For example, that a better translation of Amato gada would be gains a footing in the deathless, quote-unquote and that this discussion of merging is thus all beside the point. However, the issue at hand is that of misunderstanding and the human habit of misreading things according to one's biases, often either eternalist or annihilationist. The fact is that the English phrases merging with or plunging into, etc., have frequently been used by a variety of translators and have equally regularly been used to back up biased views of various kinds. Thus it remains useful to contemplate these teachings as they have been transmitted to us, measuring them against known truths and to find the middle way through our own reflection. And just to share with you particularly that Itivutika 49. So, this was said by the Lord. because held by two kinds of views, some devas and humans hold back, and some overreach. Only those with vision see. And how bhikkhus do some hold back? Some devas and humans enjoy being, delight in being, are satisfied with being. That's bhava. When the Dhamma is taught to them for the cessation of being, bhava-nirodha, their minds do not enter into it, or acquire confidence in it, or settle upon it, or become resolved upon it. Thus bhikkhus do some hold back. How bhikkhus do some overreach? Now some are troubled, ashamed and disgusted by this very same quality of being, and they rejoice in the idea of non-being, asserting, Good sirs, when this body perishes at death, this self is annihilated and destroyed and does not exist anymore. This is true peace. This is excellent. This is reality. Thus bhikkhus do some overreach. How bhikkhus do those with vision see? Herein one sees what has come to be as having come to be. Having seen it thus... One practices the course for turning away, for dispassion, for the cessation of what has come to be. This, because, uh, thus, because, do those with vision see? So I hope that is meaningful, makes sense to uh, to people. And uh, the, the the teaching to Kachana Kaccha, uh, about uh, the same area, the Buddha says. This world, Kachayana, for the most part dwells upon the dualism of the notions of existence and non-existence. But for one who sees the origin of the world as it really is, with right understanding, there is no notion of non-existence with regard to the world. And for one who sees the cessation of the world as it really is, with right understanding, there is no notion of existence with regard to the world. This world, Kachayana, is for the most part shackled by bias, clinging and insistence, But one such as this, with right view, instead of becoming engaged, instead of clinging, instead of taking a stand about myself, through such a bias, clinging, mental standpoint, adherence and underlying tendency, such a one has no perplexity or doubt that what arises is only dukkha arising, and what ceases is only dukkha ceasing. In this their knowledge is independent of others. It is in this way, Kachayana that there is right view. All exists, Kachayana, this is one extreme. All does not exist. This is the other extreme. Without veering towards either of these extremes, the the Tathagata teaches the Dhamma by the middle way. With ignorance as conditioned, volitional formations come to be. With volitional formations as conditioned, consciousness comes to be. And so on. Such is the origin of this whole whole mass of suffering. But with the remainderless fading away, cessation and non-arising of ignorance, there comes the cessation of volitional formations with the cessation of volitional formations. When there are no volitional formations, there is the cessation of consciousness. Consciousness does not come to be, and so on. Such is the cessation of this whole mass of suffering. And that uh, that one little sutta became the basis of Nagarjuna's um, thesis on the middle way and dependent origination and emptiness. So they, they say, So any questions, thoughts on existing, non-existing, any of that? Merging in the deathless? Silence, okay. So in the original talk that I gave, um, at this point, I then went into the biblical, I went into this um, riff about the book of Genesis, after having done gluons and muons and quarks and and um, quantum foam I then went back to the bible Um, I trimmed it out because I'd already used that in in an earlier part of this book so I I edited that out but I thought I would read that again just for the sake of it was part of the um, uh, the original talk in 1987 when I first began to look closely into Paticca Samuppada I was confounded by a number of its mysteries I couldn't work out what the whole pattern was referring to With a vague memory in mind, and intrigued by how ignorance, or innocence, desire, and suffering seemed to be themes in common, I searched out a copy of the Bible and found in the first chapter of Genesis a mythical Judaic version of the Paticha Samupala. One can reflect that this process, described so thoroughly in the Pali Canon, is related to that primal theme of the Bible. The realm of feeling is like life in the Garden of Eden. It can be very pleasant and very simple. The trouble begins when Tanha shows up. That's the serpent. What dependent origination describes is the emergence of suffering out of perfection, the emergence of pain and difficulty out of that which is pure and whole. The way that the King James Version of the Bible begins is, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. But I feel that what is meant is more along the lines of, and and I was using a different translation that I... I've seen referred to uh, from, of the, that first chapter of Genesis. It is out of God, out of perfect unity, that division emerges. I should explain a little how I arrived at this. I found that this phrase in the beginning, in reflective experience, suggested to me when a pattern appears, when the experience of a thing appears, when it begins, there emerges self and other, subject and object, this and that. Heaven, in this respect, represents that which is elsewhere. Earth, quote-unquote, that which is here. That division between here and there, subject and object, occurs when something begins and is known, when a world comes into being. After the heavens and the earth are created, there are a series of images, beginning with, quote, and the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, unquote. We can look at this part of the process as the arrival of consciousness. This consciousness is established in relationship to the world, just as vinyana and nama-rupa lean upon each other and form a reciprocal relationship, that vinyana-nama-rupa vortex mentioned earlier. In this world, the land and the waters are created, as well as all of the animals and creatures. This we can see as signifying the development of materiality and mentality, bodies and minds, This leading on to salayatana, the six sense spheres and their functions, the different ways of perceiving the world and of living life, different ways of being. This is comparable to sense contact, pasa. Then there's the arising of humanity, Adam and Eve, man and woman, and their life together in the garden. This takes us up to the point of sensation, vedana. Uh, before I go on, it was interesting. It was pointed out to me not long ago by a, a Christian uh, writer and uh, and teacher that uh, on the second day, uh, after each of the the seven days of creation, God says, "and and uh, God saw that it was good." On the second day, when there's the dividing of the heaven and the waters, He doesn't say uh, it was it was good, and um, uh, He just says it was so, and um, the. Uh, uh, and this Christian uh, writer uh, was telling me that uh, there are these various commentaries that say, "Well, why doesn't he say it was good on the second day?" And they came up with this story again. This might have to do with Papancha, conceptual proliferation, that the uh, the angels who were looking after the heavens were thought themselves superior to the ones who were looking after the the, uh, the waters and the earth, and they looked down upon them. Literally, looked down upon them. <laughs> these are kind of just the the watery angels. We're up in the heavens, and so. There was a, an argument broke out between the two sets of angels, that the, the the ones up in heaven and, and the ones down the, uh, the, uh, on the waters, and then it's uh, God had to, had to intervene and settle the argument between these two sets of angels, and so he was particularly grumpy at the end of that day. So he didn't say it was good. So that does have the feeling of pampuncher, kind of a, some kind of rabbinical scholar having a midrash, you know, kind of creating a commentary and. It was probably just like blessed of the cheesemakers. It was somebody forgot to write that into the, in the manuscript, and and so that that was a uh, a, a, a copyist error that then gets turned into a whole thesis. So, people familiar with the life of Brian. <laughs> the, the, so, blessed of the cheesemakers is a standard way of uh, describing the um, the capacity for people to make. Uh, proliferative spiritual commentaries that they're in the film that there's a few people standing at the back of the crowd at the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus has just said blessed are the peacemakers because they're so far away They, um, they the person mishears and says blessed are the cheesemakers and, and then the person next to him says well of course he really means everybody involved in the dairy industry and it's like you've got a mishearing and it becomes a, a kind of a commentary so and various monasteries that I lived in, and Blessed of the Cheesemakers has become a, a way of referring to how we take a, you know, a mistake or an error and then, uh, or some kind of random thing and create a whole universe out of it. So, anyway, there we are Adam and Eve uh, in the garden. This takes us up to the point of sens- sens- sensational feeling, which is unself conscious. Now, it's at this turn that the serpent comes along, and it represents, understandably enough, temptation or desire desire comes along and says here's the tree of knowledge standing right in the middle of the garden you could help yourself there's more to life than just being in the garden like this you know the snake has its charms and soon desire tanha turns into clinging upadana as eve and adam eat the fruit of the tree from this follows becoming as knowledge and self-consciousness arise then comes rebirth suddenly adam and eve realize they're naked as the shock of birth, as the Master appears on the scene. Adam, where are you? I think in the original talk I said, oh God. (laughs) If I remember correctly. No pun intended. It was just, Adam, where are you? The natural consequence of the, the moment of birth, when Adam and Eve are discovered, is represented as God's judgment and the punishment he puts upon them. So they find themselves driven out of Eden, exiled from the garden, sensitive, open, separated, and subject to all kinds of suffering. They are born into the world, feeling heat and cold, hunger, aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. Or to paraphrase Genesis chapter 3, all the days of your lives you will toil with sweat and bring forth children in pain. In the realm of feeling, there can be a lot of clarity and wisdom. There's the body and the life of the senses, and there's the experience of feeling, pleasant, painful, or neutral feeling. That, on its own, doesn't cause any difficulty at all. It's very simple, and the heart can be completely awake and at peace with it. But the stronger the influence of ignorance, not seeing clearly, the lack of wisdom, the lack of mindfulness, the more the mind will believe in those feelings of liking, disliking, and neutral feeling, and will tend to be intoxicated by them there's a lack of mindfulness and wisdom, then there is a feeling of dislike which turns easily into, I hate it, I can't stand it, I've got to get away from this. Similarly, if it's an experience of liking, if there is a lack of mindfulness and wisdom, then the liking turns into, oh, this is great, I want this, I've got to have this, and the mind chases after that desire object. So that was the uh, the uh, riff upon the, the biblical theme. In terms of Paticca samapada, so it did, uh, and it did seem to make sense. You have got ignorance, um, you've got uh, uh, craving, the, the serpent coming along, and then the result of following that feeling of craving, you've got being cast out of the garden and living uh, in the uh, the state of, of uh, vulnerability. All the all the days of your life, you'll sweat, you'll you'll eat through the the sweat of your brow and bring forth children in pain. So. So again, it's, uh, it's not a a, um, a uh, sort of philosophically tight description or comparison, but it's just a reflective theme that sort of came up in my mind, trying to understand the relationship between ignorance, craving, and suffering. And it seemed to be that that myth- mythical tale that begins the Bible is, is can be very um, directly re- relating to that. So before I go on with the last last one any questions thoughts anybody else had the same pattern of thinking yes I just like to ask you from the mythological way what the Indra stands for Indra is a goodness Indra, Indra yeah. well Indra is um, a powerful deva and so rather like uh, uh, Wotan or Odin in the Norse gods, or Z- Zeus in the Greek gods, uh, Jupiter in the Roman gods, or, uh, so that uh, Indra or Saka S A K K A Saka is usually the um, the the name used for for Saka. The one of the distinctive features is that he's a, he's a kind of uh, a warrior god. You know, he, he fights. He leads the army of the Devas against the in the fights against the Asuras. He has a thunderbolt that he can blast other beings with. So he's a warrior god, like like Odin or Jupiter or Zeus. He's the the, the wielder of, of thunderbolts, can zap people, but also particularly with um, he's, he's a bit better behaved <laughs> than Odin and and Zeus, and uh, he's more. Uh, uh, scrupulous about Sila than some of the, the European um, <laughs> warrior gods and the sort of, uh, and and sort of, uh, king kings of the gods, because he loves the Buddha, he loves the Dhamma, and he's a very committed Dhamma practitioner. So he's a protector of the of the Sangha, and so there's a um, uh, there's quite a number of places in the teachings where where he comes along and asks for instruction from the Buddha the Sakha-panha, the questions of, of Sakha. And um, so he has a very respectful, loving relationship to the Buddha and uh, is a devotee. So mo- many devas are just sort of distracted by their own happiness. So Indra or, or Sakha is notable in that uh, he's one of the devas that has a, a a great respect for Dhamma and wants to practice and, and supports and protects Dhamma practitioners. So he's notable in that respect. Um, the uh, the the European sort of thunderbolt wielding deities like Odin and and Zeus and Jupiter they are, they're not quite so spiritually inclined and they uh, and even though uh, Saka did have quite a few queens and, and concubines that he wasn't so uh, badly behaved in terms of uh, you know, molesting human women and uh, causing stealing people's partners and and uh, Causing uh, great mayhem and difficulty on that score, so he's very different in that respect. But he has that same kind of a a role as a sort of ruling deity, and but he also has quite a lot of wisdom uh, uh, and understanding. And so that frequently, when when he's represented in the teachings, um, it's uh, it's through displaying faith in the in the Dhamma, displaying wisdom, a, a bit more kind of uh, say uh, mature or wise or, or um, uh, has a greater quality of understanding than, than the other devas around him. So he's a kind of spiritual leader within his own community as well as a sort of powerful warrior figure. So the last one of these, uh, these teachings uh, the other image I would like to talk about concerns the process of what happens in the moment of moving from that sense of perfection and suchness into rebirth and suffering. What is the pattern that occurs? The way that you might envisage this, envisage this is to imagine yourself as an eye high above the world, an, an eye, not an eye, but a, <laughs> a seeing eye, an eye high above the world, far above the clear waters of the ocean. All that can be seen from where you are is just a pure expanse of blue. The mind is resting in the sense of stillness and being. There's a peace of mind, alertness, clarity. Then, because of careless tendencies, the attention slips from resting in stillness of being and the eye begins to look closer at the blue beneath it. You begin to be able to discern that there is some kind of a pattern, there are some kinds of shapes on the surface of the the ripples of the the waves and the currents and the the movement of the, the caused by the wind the kinds of shapes and patterns on the surface this is the arising of awareness of formations of separateness of pattern of this and that then a process of absorption follows there's a drawing in a focusing in um, uh, of the attention so that the the eye is attracted down telescoping towards the waves on the surface of the ocean. It draws closer and closer in upon the pattern. Firstly from above, you can just perceive there is some kind of a shape there. Then, as you get closer, you can see the way the patterns relate to each other, the shapes they make and the relationships they form. This corresponds to the arising of consciousness, the forces that act between things. The absorption carries on and the distinction between the physical qualities, formations, and the formless qualities, consciousness, becomes more definite. This can be seen as a closer observation of particular waves and the way that they move and act upon each other. This corresponds to the differentiation of experience into materiality and mentality. The process then develops as you become closer and closer to some particular wave, until there is a complete absorption. You pass through the development of the six senses and contact as the proximity increases and then feeling as you connect with that wave. You're floating at ease, being carried by the wave, but then suddenly the mind is no longer free. There is no longer just the sensation of being with the sea. The wave begins to rise and roll and the mind is caught, caught on the crest. This is then desire and clinging. The mind is caught by the wave and there arises the thrill of being carried along as it swells. This develops into the the process of becoming, so that uh, the feeling of being carried along or rocked by the wave, then suddenly the wave starts rolling and you're you're riding, you you manage to manifest a surfboard at this point, magically appeared in this sort of uh, dreamscape or imaginative sphere, Uh, so that uh, the mind is caught by the wave, and there arises the thrill of being carried along as it swells, This develops into the process of becoming, as you're swept along by its momentum like a surfer riding a big roller. There is a sense of beautiful abandonment and perfection as you you speed along. There's a sense of excitement and absorption. You're completely caught with that wave, caught up in that rushing exhilaration. All sense of reflection has vanished and there is maximum excitement. Becoming is the big hit of the mortal realm. But then, what happens after becoming? The wave encounters the reef, and then suddenly the reef is like the rocks under the water. The wave encounters the reef, and suddenly from that glorious exhilaration, wham! Your surfboard is turned upside down, you're flying through the air, smashed on the rocks. Birth has happened. And here comes life in the roar: Aging and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. So there you are, struggling, you can't, work out, you can't work out which way is up or down, you've lost your surfboard, you wonder which way the land is, and yet you find yourself looking to climb on yet another great wave, you find yourself looking for another rebirth. These patterns which have been mentioned here are just a few ways of seeing, but to really use this teaching, you must investigate and know it for yourself. We have to inquire of ourselves, what's the source of our experience of existence? What is this pattern describing what is that feeling of perfection what is it like just to be clear and open totally at peace how does that get lost and how does that losing happen if you inquire like this you'll see how these patterns can be traced in your own life and consequently be more able to free yourself so that was the last of uh, these uh, these images and um, that uh, that, uh, that got printed up and published in the Buddhist Society magazine, The Middle Way. And uh, when it got printed, I thought I'm going to get all kinds of <laughs> all kinds of flack or criticism. But uh, strangely enough, I didn't, because it was, uh, it was very uh, far from the canonical interpretations. But I thought, okay, well, various uh, old school Theravadans or, or um, offended Mahayānists and such like, and uh, or Hindus or or, or quantum phys- quantum mechanics would be upset or irritated, but uh, it, it got almost no response at all, to my surprise. Okay. It's called uh, Images of, of Causation, is the original title of it. And I finished it off with a quote from Finnegan's Wake, which is one of my favourite books, which um, not that many people have read it, but James Joyce's last book, which is um, quite challenging reading about a about, uh, a third of the words are written in normal English, (laughs) about two-thirds are compound words or things that he's made up. But he describes dependent origination. Uh, uh, It's about page 18 of Finnegan's Wake. In the ignorance that implies impression, that knits knowledge, that finds the name form, that wets the wits, that convey contacts, that sweetens sensation, that drives desire, that adheres to attachment, that dogs death, that bitches birth, that entails the of of extens- existentiality. So I thought since James Joyce was acquainted with own part, I would include that as, as well, just to finish things off with. So, any thoughts on that last um, the eye in the sky imagery and uh, uh, whether that has any familiarity or any value, any meaning? Don't be shy, please. Does it does mean that one can drop out of, uh, of Nibbāna again? I mean, in a way, so it's it? Like yes, yeah. yeah. That, uh, well, I would say... Yeah, L- Lumpur Chā's definition of Nibbāna, well, uh, he, he called it the reality of non-grasping. So, I would say most of us, if not all of us, have had the experience of Nibbāna in those moments when the grasping stops. It's called tadang- tadangana nibbana, or momentary nibbana, or tadangana vim, uh, vimutti. So sort of momentary or temporary nibbana. Uh, if you are interested, Ajahn Buddhadasa's book called "Nibbana for Everyone" is really valuable. Really fine little book. Um, so yeah, when, when the grasping stops, then right there is the, the taste of nibbana. And so, if the conditions come together. Where the, the the mind is awake and free of grasping, you know, that is a has the genuine taste of nibbana. There's simplicity, uh, peacefulness, a completely um, uh, uncomplicated, <laughs> and no sense of self. And it might just last a second or half a second, but uh, in the terms of giving meditation instruction, I often. Encourage uh, that. Notice that. You know. Notice what that's like when the grasping stops. How does that feel? What's the quality of that? So then that becomes something that that is known. Actually, one of the one of the um, uh, the exchanges with Saka with with Indra is uh, where the, the Buddha explains exactly that. Um, uh, I think it's it's uh, is it the Buddha or Mahamogalana? Anyway, I think it's uh, um, uh, the um, I think it's Mahamogalana Indra has just built this new palace, and he's showing he's showing Mahamogalana around his palace. He's, it's the Vajianta Palace. Saying, oh, look at this! this is hundreds of rooms, and and uh, and then Mahamogalana thinks this deity is completely heedless. He's intoxicated with his building project. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Being in the middle of a big building project, I can relate to that. But uh, yeah, Mogalana says, oh, this, 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 this deity is completely intoxicated with his, his, this new building. And he, t- and he touches the floor with his toe, and he causes this, this, this earthquake. in, the, up in the, This is up in the Tabatinksa heaven. He causes this earthquake to happen, and the whole palace shakes. And, and then Indra is sort of uh, alerted to, oh, you know, I was getting carried away there, sorry. He was just showing all the features of his new palace to, to Maha Moggallana. And then, uh, and then the um, uh, the teaching that Mogalana uh, gives him is then uh, uh, the, this teaching of, uh, of sabbe dhamma nalang abhinivesaya, Nothing whatsoever should be clung to, and so that's one of the. Again, that Ajahn Buddhadasa would emphasise that he wouldn't mention the <laughs> Indra probably, <laughs> but that teaching of nothing whatsoever should be clung to. And how uh, the the Buddha uh, in, in the teachings it says, if you know that you know everything. If you understand that you understand everything. If you practice that you practiced everything. If you fully realized the truth of that, you've realized everything. So it's pointing to just that much. When the clinging stops, when the the heart is free of clinging, then what is the what is revealed? What is what is known is the 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 reality of dhamma itself the presence of dhamma itself so that when when we are uh, going through the course of our day and experience and practicing meditation formally or informally just notice when that when the mind is free of clinging what's life like you don't have to close your eyes <laughs> you don't have to be by yourself it's just when there is that that the freedom from from grasping from clinging when there when there that the reality of non-grasping is is actualized. There's a, a quality of purity, simplicity, uh, peacefulness, uh, and a sense of, of ease. It's not like an ecstatic state. It's not like whoa, kind of trumpets going off or rainbows appearing in the sky. It's a, in a way, it's it's utter normality. It's like normality at last. <laughs> but it's completely simple, peaceful, and. Uh, And spacious, Uh, but because the mind is used to to engaging with things, then it it, that's why the third noble truth. Nampo Samaeda would emphasise that's the hardest one because the mind doesn't is not habituated to staying with peace. It looks for the next interesting thing. It looks for the next agitation, the next flag that's fluttering. So that we we know those moments. We know that ah. Oh, this is nice. What's next? <laughs> so it's with that when that moment of, of ease and relaxation, just the that developing the third noble truth is then staying with that, notice fully, imbibing that, fully noticing, receiving that, and letting that sort of soak through the whole system. So that I would say we all have those experiences of nibbana. We don't necessarily call it that, but we can also fail to notice it because we're so eagerly looking for the next interesting thing, the next thing to worry about or the next next item on our list of things to do. further questions, thoughts, reflections? That's the end of the catastrophe apostrophe. Even the apostrophe has come to an end. So that's that for you all. And so uh, what I will do from uh, tomorrow, I guess, uh, we'll start with readings from uh, Venerable Paiuto's Dependent Origination book. So it's got a bit of a different tone, but uh, it's a really wonderful exposition on the whole area. And so I thought I would, for the rest of the um, winter retreat period, I would do readings from that. To share with everyone. So I'll leave it there for today. And the man, and the mayang, oh, come over the Please make your way, uh, Deeper. You had a list of questions about that, um, things you wanted to record and such like. So uh, tomorrow morning at breakfast, we can go through the, the list of things you wanted to ask about. So if you, be, I should be, yeah, I should be here at breakfast time tomorrow. So just come up and we can go through the. There's some yeas and some nays and some question marks.